2: Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason, and with me as usual is Rich. Hello, Rich.
3: What is going on?
2: Not a lot. You know, uh, it's... Well, honestly, it's been kind of a crazy uh, off-season, at least recently. Uh, some, some big news kind of happening. Usually we're in the dead part of the season, but... Uh, And actually, the season's, you know, getting really reasonably close to preseason starting. So, uh, and then the season after that. So, I don't know. I was about to say nothing's going on, but actually things are happening. Yeah, we
3: got some hot training camp coming up pretty soon. We got a bunch of players that won't play in the NBA playing big minutes in games. I mean, you got to, how can you not get excited about that? How could
2: I not? No. Yeah. (laughs) We got trade demands, you know, uh, Jimmy Butler being weird. um, Mark Cuban being creepy. You know, that that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, perfect. It's fun. And big news recently uh, is we've got a a brand new set of Hall of Famers. We do. A really cool set
3: of Hall of Famers, too. This is one, you know, and and this is going to probably happen for quite a while, at least for my generation. I don't know know how you feel about this, but I'm starting to see my guys that I grew up with coming in as Hall of Famers, and that's kind of cool to know that, like, dudes that I really liked and, and guys that I really, you know, looked up to or, 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 or really enjoyed watching as a kid or as, you know, I was kind of growing into my NBA fandom, I starting to go in the Hall of Fame, so it's kind of cool when that sort of happens, so it's kind of aligning with me for the first time in a while. I mean, before there had been, of course, Hall of Fame classes with guys that I was well aware of, but this one really felt like it was one where I was like, oh yeah, like all these guys have like a profound effect on me in one way or another.
2: Yeah, well, it's funny because these guys basically started their career when I was yeah, like 18, 19, 20. So now I'm, you know, they're not quite from my youth, but they're from, you know, a very formative period in which I, I got back into the NBA into my mid 20s. And these are, you know, most of the, you know, the this, you know, these few classes are being like, the, you know, the guys who really were central in that. So I, I'm feeling it from a slightly different perspective, but definitely a, you know, a similar one.
3: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And then a few of the names we're going to talk about here, of course, are guys that, um, you know, You know, and one guy like a Grant Hill who, you know, when I was really, I mean, obviously a little bit younger, I was born in 1987, but he was one of these guys that as, you know, of course, everybody was looking for that next Jordan or whatever, the next person that was going to be in line to be the superstar of the NBA. And and Grant Hill was that for, for quite a while. And obviously Ray Allen had a transcendent effect and Steve Nash. And we'll, we'll talk about all these guys in a little bit. But yeah, these are some heavy hitters in the Hall of Fame this year. It's not, you know, some years you get a class of guys that are, are, are obviously very good players, but not quite elite time. But there, there are some really heavy hitters in this one. Guys that I, I, I couldn't wait to, uh, uh, to talk about a little bit.
2: Absolutely. So we're yeah we're focused on the uh, six guys who were, um, you know, who are mainly in for NBA reasons. Um, <clears throat> talking about then we decided we talk about their uh, greatest overall games and their greatest postseason games. Um, so yeah, I guess we've sort of stumbled into our summer series here, talking about uh, greatest games or last greatest games, or find different angles. Talk about that's been uh, kind of a just a fun way to uh, do it. Of course, get to use Basketball Reference a lot. Uh, you know, we uh, filter these through through like game score and obviously you know great stat lines as well, and, and then try to find some context about the games and you know, kind of make our decisions that way. We don't just go by game score, but that's definitely our, our guideline here.
3: Yeah, see, I thought this whole episode, we were going to do whole biographies about each one of these Hall of Famers, so I uh, over-prepared a little bit, so that, that's fine. Oh. I also had The Greatest Games, but I thought we were also going to, you know, I thought this would be a six-hour show. I got my I got my <laughs> right. coffee ready. I thought we were like, <laughs> wow. all right, yeah. start. right, let's start with Ray Allen. All right, Ray Allen all was right. born, you know, 19, <laughs> you know, went to Kentucky, and then, uh, you know, then, yeah, okay, all right, so I yeah. guess I'll delete all that stuff. All right, that's fine. Yeah, we'll do right, The Greatest Game enough, thing to it. That's, fair enough. I had, that, I had that prepared as well, so that, that yeah. we could
2: just do that instead. So. Also, if you think Ray Allen went to Kentucky, I don't know how good a reason. I'm at UConn, I think. <laughs> I guess my notes weren't very good, so it's a good yeah. I deleted them. So. Alright, yeah, good thing. Right. So um yeah. So um do you want to start off with uh, Mr. I watched L? all of He
3: got game, Jason. Come on. All of it, yeah.
2: <laughs> Gotta get it yeah.
3: copious notes, but I
2: guess all right, whatever. Right. Cool. We'll have to do that. Save that for a live show.
3: Yeah, that should be oh that'd be You yeah, know, that'd be a good one. I mean we yeah. last year, yeah, last year our Christmas show we watched Space Jam and got drunk and talked about how shitty it is. Yeah. Um in a few years we'll be able to watch Space Jam 2 and talk about how shitty that sure. one is. Um right. yeah, we need another I do we well, do do we ever do a good movie? I I don't know if it's I, I we like our yet, fun games and bad movies. I don't know. I wonder if it's not a good idea to do like a good oh. movie. So
2: yeah, we'll have to see how they goes. We'll have to, we'll have to workshop that one. See, but uh, see what happens. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine Space Jam, to Like everything LeBron does will be better than uh, what Michael Jordan did. Oh, so. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And just kidding. At over and back NBA. Uh, if
3: you want to find us <laughs> on Twitter?
2: <laughs>
3: at Jason uh, at the tree. Uh alright All yes. right. Let's let's get to this guy. So we got. We'll, we'll start with Ray Allen. Ray Allen. Yes. Okay. All right. I'll, let me delete my. Uh, he got game notes. Okay. So his <laughs> best right. overall game. Uh, 2007, this is January 12th, 2007, uh, Seattle Supersonics, 122 Utah Jazz, 114, a throwback here with Seattle Supersonics, 54 points, is actually the career high for Ray Allen on uh, 72.4% uh, true shooting, 10 rebounds, 5 assists, and 0 turnovers, so uh, that's a pretty interesting game for this franchise at the point. Uh, because this was the second highest scoring mark uh, that the Sonics had ever had. The previous high uh, came in March 23rd, 1974. And Fred Brown, a guy we've talked about many times on the show, uh, had 58 points. Uh, the game is pretty fun as well. Allen scores uh, 18 points in the fourth quarter and hits and, and, and gets 15 of those points in the final five minutes. Uh, some other fun stuff about this, too. He's a perfect 12 for 12 from the free throw line and 8 for 12 from three-pointers. So... Um, which I found kind of funny because I'm thinking eight through twelve, yeah, okay, whatever. And and I just started doing a little bit of research on this. Is where it's kind of funny uh, is eight threes in a game seems routine. You know, these days, there was 30 times last year that that happened. Five times Steph Curry did it himself. Uh, but by the, by the time that this game happened in 2007, just to show you how much the NBA has changed in, in such a little time, only 118 times in NBA history had a player made eight or more threes in a game. And only 62 times did a player do it with on, on, on 12 or fewer shots. So it's not just guys chucking, it's guys efficiently shooting threes or whatever. Uh, unsurprisingly, Ray Allen had the most of those games to this point uh, with eight uh uh, eight or more threes in eight games uh, for Ray Allen, but yeah, kind of funny. Thirty times last year, and then 118 times uh, from 2007 until you know what 1983 or whatever it had happened. But uh, yeah, so yeah, right. Now, yeah, yeah. So now it's just now it's just routine. I mean, eight threes in a game is is it, uh, not super routine, but like yeah, you know, <laughs> Steph Curry did it five times alone last year. Where at that point, Ray Allen had only done it eight times in his career, but still a pretty good uh, record there. And also at this point, some other names here. Dennis Scott was second at this point with seven games uh, with eight or more threes, and then George McLeod, our good friend George McLeod, I don't know why I said my good, good friend. I don't know if George friend. McLeod yeah. is actually a friend. I mean, are you? I, I, yeah. I shouldn't. I speak, not speaking for myself. Is George McCloud your good friend? Uh, he not might mine. be my best we're friend. A, okay, great. Because we're just he kind of casual be. acquaintances. Me and. Yeah. I mean. In mean, the cloud, but uh, I'm glad to know that you sure. uh, you are, are, are indeed best friends with George McCloud, which I thought uh, yeah. he had he was third with six of those types of games. So right. uh, pretty good there. Uh, after the game, Ray Allen, definitely confident, says people want to know what a zone, what the zone is like. And if I could have tape and show people this is what it's like. You can't explain it. It just happens. So Ray Allen in the zone. Uh, teammate Nick Collison. Yes, he used to be a valuable player. He wasn't just a guy at the end of the bench. So he said, oh, yeah, Nick Collison still plays. Uh, he scored 25 points and had 13 rebounds. This is his third straight double-double at this point, too. So Nick Collison, competent player at this point. Uh, this also helped competent team not the Seattle Supersonics because this outburst by Ray Allen and, and, and Nick Collison helped uh, Seattle avoid a seventh straight loss. And uh, this was in the midst of Ray Allen's final season in Seattle. Uh, he was scoring at a career-high mark. He finished the season at uh, 26.4, but Seattle was uh, really having some trouble uh, at this point in the year. They were 14-25, and 25, uh, and they would end the campaign 31-50, and 50, and there would only be one more season in Seattle before they would move to OKC. So this was the year uh, that allowed them to get bad enough to get Kevin Durant and then, of course, move on. Uh, to OKC in another uh, year. So uh, kind of sad uh, ending to the Ray Allen's, you know, Seattle tenure and, and kind of Seattle in general. But, yeah, they were uh, they were no good at this point and It'd be a little while till this franchise was was good again uh, as well.
2: Yeah. And, and they were they had been good uh, as recently as a couple years before. You know, I think yeah, they've 50 games pretty routinely uh, around right. this time exactly yeah so yeah, I mean they actually 31 wins is, is not obviously good but it's not usually terrible enough to get the number two pick but that was kind of a weird year where um, uh, you know the, the Blazers moved up the uh, Science moved up and I think the Hawks moved up as well both those all those teams like you know, moved up it was a uh, it was an unusual uh, situation I think that was your Boston tried to tank and then ended up by uh, like getting fifth or something but <laughs> but then they ended up getting uh, you know uh, big three anyway so True. but not okay for them
3: uh, yeah, I, I, who did Atlanta get that year? Why am I blanking on Horford? Okay, I was gonna make fun of them, but that's actually a good pick. Okay, darn, yeah. I was really hoping right. it was like you know, like somebody, Sean Williams or yeah, yeah Williams. Williams or yeah. yeah, right.
2: There's a lot of good. picks from that time to make fun of. So Horford, yeah, that's
3: that's yeah. true. That's one of the good ones that worked out quite well for them. So so good for them. Uh, yeah. It's actually kind of a fun draft as well. So other than Odin, I'm kind of looking at it now. You have Kevin Durant number two, Al Horford number three, Mike Conley number four. Jeff Green, so these are all, like, competent players still playing a little bit. Uh, EG on Leon, number 6, maybe not so much there, but, yeah. uh, I mean, I like EG on Leon, but uh, uh, Corey sure. Brewer, um, serviceable player, I don't know if he's the number yeah, 7 overall enough. pick. Right. Uh, Joe Kim Noah, number 9, you know, the player until a few years ago when his knees fell off. And, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, you know, Thaddeus Young comes number 12, I and mean, there's, there's some solid players in yeah. this. Not a lot of, like, real big superstars other than Kevin Durant and, and essentially, you know, Hal Horford, but some good stuff in there, for sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um... Marcus, yeah, Saul, so, number forty-eight in the second round. So <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Yeah, so that uh, that worked out pretty well as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think obviously the more memorable performance, as it generally would be, is his. Uh, what are the really one of the great playoff games of all time? Honestly, especially in recent memory, the uh, the. <clears throat> The triple overtime uh, was a triple or double overtime. I'm sorry. This um, one was
3: triple. I believe. Triple overtime. So this, yes. this was a nuts playoff series as well. This yeah. is the Boston Chicago playoff series from uh, 2009. Just absolute insanity. This entire series.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know three of the first five games in this series went to overtime. Game four went to two overtimes. Every game you know was extremely extremely close. Uh, this one was Chicago 128, Boston uh, 127. Uh, 51 points for Ray Allen which is a playoff career high 73 true shooting percentage uh, 5 rebounds 3 assists 9 of 18 from 3 6 of 7 from 3 field line uh, 3 points shy of the Celtics playoff record and uh, at the time was a playoff all time high with 9 3 pointers um, and yeah, this ended up the Bulls ended up actually winning this game because this was game 6 this uh, led the Bulls to the upstart Bulls the first year for Derrick Rose I believe and um, to yes, uh, yeah. yes, to to force a game seven in the Eastern Conference uh, first round against the uh, the formidable Celtics. I, of course, Kevin Garnett was out for the uh, series, so they were not quite as formidable as usual. But it was definitely a great uh, battle of youth versus age, and you know, just this being just the year after the Celtics had won the championship, so out to defend their title. Even you know, they were still obviously really good even without Garnett. So um, yeah, I, I mean, the so many fantastic highlights from this game. Yeah, there's
3: some great stuff. I think the best, though, is, is, is going to be the final few minutes of the second overtime. And that's when Ray Allen really went to work here. Uh, Celtics were leading 113, 111. Uh, then uh, Glenn Davis uh, scored. Uh, they went a little cold, though. Uh, Bulls grabbed the lead. Uh, John Salmon's a name that's uh, from the past. When I was watching this game, John Salmon's like takes over this game <laughs> for the Bulls. It's quite it's quite a thing to see John Salmon's out there, you know, doing some stuff. But he responds to the three pointer, uh, puts Chicago ahead. He makes it a three point game with a driving layup with two minutes left. And it stayed that way until Allen with his toes touching the arc, he buries a jumper from the right corner, that pulls Boston within 116-115 20 seconds remaining, Brad Miller yes, Brad Miller on his second run with the Bulls hits two uh, free throws uh, to make it a three point game, but then Allen was not finished, he dribbles to his left and buries a three pointer over Heinrich to tie it with 7.6 seconds left, so um, yes, yeah, as always, I remember this game vividly watching it live and just being like, well, you got to foul Ray Allen at this point. You don't want Ray Allen to take a three pointer. I mean, he's, it's fucking Ray Allen. <laughs> like, you know, he's probably going to make a three and always the wise coach Vinny Del Negro decides nah, we'll take our risks with Ray Allen and taking a three. And guess what happened? Ray Allen took a three and he scored. And, um, yeah, to put it to triple overtime. Uh, And then this is also the game where uh, Joe Noah had his famous steal and and run down the court, foul, and one, you know, dunk or whatnot. So there's always a lot of good stuff. But this game is incredible, and the series is incredible. This was on Hardwood Classics a few weeks ago. Um, and, and I know they show it every so often as well, because it is a really, really great one, but, uh, yeah, Ray Allen had a masterful game, as you said, 51, uh, points also, uh, six from uh, seven from three, uh, the free throw and then uh, nine of 18 from three, but yeah, really great game with that second, uh, overtime really being, uh, the deciding factor where he comes out and, 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 scores their last five points and really, uh, saves their, 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 their the game and really in, in some ways may have saved their season. Of course they still ended up losing the game, but yeah, I think they ended up uh, having a little bit more of a fight. In them, and of course, being able to take it to a game seven was was important.
2: And yeah, and I think there's a uh, there's an honorable mention performance that's worth uh, noting from 2005: uh, the Sonics and Kings in the uh, in the playoffs. Uh, I believe this. I, I, have, I think the Kings made the playoffs one more time after this. I, I guess the Kings have made the playoffs more recently than the Sonics have, but I'm not 100 percent sure about that. Uh, actually, <laughs> um, which the fact that I'm not 100 sure about that says a lot. Um, <clears throat> But, yes, uh, Ray Allen, 45 points, uh, 75 true shooting, uh, 6 of 4 from 3, 5 of 5 from the free throw line, uh, also uh, 6 assists, uh, 4 steals, and 2 blocks. Uh, Massive performance against the uh, Kings. Uh, this was, uh, I believe this was a first-round uh, series. Uh, this was the same playoffs where the uh, the Sonics gave the uh, Spurs a tougher-than-expected uh, fight, the Jerome James series, as we like to call it. Um uh, who's also stout in uh, this game but yes this is sort of the last legs of the uh, sort of the old you know early 2000s Kings they'd already traded Chris Webber but they still had uh, Stojakovic they still had Mike Bibby uh, they also had uh, and Bobby Jackson uh, Brad Miller uh, they also had Katina Mobley and Kenny Thomas so interesting little uh, team there um, but uh but yeah, that, that was kind of the. I think they ended up trading because they traded Salkovic for Ron Artest, I believe, the next season. And that, that yes, kind of. I think they played the playoffs one more time. I think they had bouncy balls in that team too. Now that I uh, think about it, so
3: yes, yeah, so so I did. Unfortunately, find out that the uh, the the 506 Kings made the playoffs. They lost in the first round, and the Sonics uh, and, that was, happen, and so. the Sonics did not. So they the Kings were one year ahead of the Sonics, uh, but still pretty pathetic. All things considered, that uh, it still has been that. So yes, the Sacramento Kings used to be in the playoffs. We promise, it was a thing. Yes. They were a yes. team that was sometimes. Competent, we promise. Right,
2: the uh, the Bobcats have made the playoffs more recently than the Kings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there we go. There it is. Yes, yeah. I, I bet I'm not 100% <laughs> sure about this, but I bet the New Jersey Nets have made the playoffs since the uh, since the Kings did as well. So what? we'll have to, we'll have to yeah, let me, let
3: me, let's find long out. Long let's later. find out about the old New Jersey Nets. Uh, yes, 06 07, the New Jersey Nets uh, right. made it to the Eastern Conference semis. Oh, uh, that was yeah. Lawrence Frank's uh, not his final season, not right. he was right in the middle of the. Lawrence Frank here, but uh, okay. yeah, they did. That was the uh... okay. Kid was still there. Okay, uh, yeah, kid Nick was still there. Carter, Carter, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah Ned sure. we can't, of course, we can't, oh, we, course. We can't forget. Yeah, and our our actual good friend Cliff Robinson was on that team as well. So, oh, absolutely, you know. yeah. All right.
2: well, <laughs> yeah. What, what, are you suggesting that George McLeod and I are not friends? Uh, no, no, no. Well. Me and George McLeod are not friends, as I said. Okay, Cliff right. Robinson I, are friends. I, you and George oh, yeah, McLeod
3: are, 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 if nothing, if not the best friends. So that's, it's, it's weird. It's yeah. kind of conflicting there, where, where I don't know yeah. who we, we consider the team best, or the, you know, yeah. our team, who our best friend is between George McLeod and, and Cliff Robinson. So.
2: Right. Our combined best friend is, of course, Jason Richardson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Right. You know. So... Uh, Anyway, uh, moving on to uh, Maurice Cheeks. About time you made the uh, Hall of Fame, and yeah, what um, the hell? Twenty eighteen is when we put Mo Cheeks in the Hall of Fame. What are we doing here? <laughs> it's a little weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it, you know, maybe we'll be able to get some of the older guys. Maybe maybe our Jack Sigmas, maybe our Bobby Dandriches. You know, maybe guys from that era that uh, you know seem to have gotten lost in the shuffle and are inis- inis- simply not in the Hall of Fame. You know, uh, are going to be able to make it in. You know, with, with Mo being in there. Of course, he's you know been an active coach in his career. You know, these guys been around, kept his name out there. So, of course, the uh, the clips of him helping that girl with the national anthem, you know, all, all kind of popped around. So, you know, he's uh, he does some nice things. So, not the best coaching career, but that's uh, that's not what this is about. This is about <laughs> no, a no. great playing career. And um, yeah, his uh, best performance uh, game score does not have. Uh, 383 stats for him, at least for most games there are a few exceptions, but... So, um, the best one that we could find, and it's interesting because it's, it's part of a very, like a notable stretch of his career of, of top game scores, but uh, this is from... Um, February eleventh, nineteen eighty seven. It was a loss to the Detroit Pistons, one twenty three to one thirteen. He had uh, thirty one points on seventy one true shooting, four rebounds, twelve assists, six steals, and four turnovers. But with all the other stats there, that's uh, that's still pretty, pretty uh, important. He and uh, and center Tim McCormick, uh, who had twenty and eleven, stepped up with uh, with Irving and Barkley both uh, ineffective in the game. Uh, interestingly enough, also Bill Lambeer had a 30-20 game here, which it was the tenth highest game scorer of his career. So uh, a standout one for for Lambier. Um, and uh, if you look at uh, Cheeks' top three game scores, they were all in a fifteen-day stretch from uh, in nineteen eighty-seven. So the uh, the number three was on February eighteenth. He had twenty-five, seven, fourteen, and five. And then the number two was. Um, was the on the final date on February 26th, was 28, 5, 11, and 4. He was 12 of 14 in that game from both the field and the free throw line, which I I, I thought was a, a <laughs> yeah, eight, That's uh, I,
3: that. Stat. If you could do a query on that, that'd be awesome to, to, to see guys that have the exact same line from the free throw line. I, I, obviously, more than like one of one or two of two or whatever. Right. That'd, be, that'd yeah. be pretty funny just to see. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, Actually, this game is on YouTube. Uh, I will try to remember to put a link to it. It's actually really, really good quality. And, it, and I watched, um, I watched the pregame, and then I, I kind of had it on while I was doing other things throughout the commentary for most of it. And it, there, there was really no notes. And these were uh, Philly announcers. Uh, that you know, he was going on a. There was no note that he was on a career best stretch here. That there was nothing that was apparently seen as unusual about this. I mean, that they, they are very good, not necessarily like remarkably, you know awesome stat lines they're really good for his career obviously but it's just interesting to see what um, you know what what we're seeing versus kind of what we can look at um, Mm -hmm. now you know as kind of a basis of comparison
3: yeah, uh, yeah and I, this is a game that I, I was able to check out a little bit when you put it in the notes and, and yeah, it's rare that you get, because uh, there are obviously plenty of games on YouTube, they're kind of chopped up and they're, they're a little bit weird, but this one is in pretty decent quality as well, a lot of times it, the audio is either sounds like crap or whatever, but uh, this one looks really pretty well and it's pretty awesome when when, when you can uh, watch a game like that and consume it and stuff, and anything yeah, that keeps the pregame too, I love that aspect of it as well, just uh, the other, and, and one thing I really do enjoy about this, and it's like, you know, you said these are Philly announcers, a lot of times when you watch some of the older games and you find them on YouTube, they 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 tend to be like kind of the local broadcast. Like I remember I was watching a a Utah jazz game and it was like the Salt Lake City announcer. And it's cool because like, you know, usually my consumption of NBA has been national, uh, you know, other than. You know, the, the teams that I, of course, watch, like, you know, the Bulls are ones that I watch, you know, uh, locally. But it's kind of cool to hear these announcers that I've really never heard before and get like a local, because I think you get a whole different sense of kind of the, the the tenor around players when you listen to their normal announcing. Except for in this case, like you're saying, Cheeks is on a career best <laughs> record. Everyone's just like, yeah whatever. Okay, whatever. Not, you know, not like any big deal. That most Cheeks is just having this incredible run of his career. But uh, no, I do, do enjoy the, uh, I mean, YouTube's incredible. Just the stuff that's on there. And I hope that more and more just keeps going up there uh, over the years. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, this game was cool because the pregame stuff, as you mentioned, uh, this was uh, Julius Erving's retirement year, so he was having you know big tour, big ceremonies, and they had a uh, they had a really long you know pregame ceremony in San Antonio with uh, you know talking about his ABA days and talking about you know, how important he was to the ABA, surviving the ABA, and they gave him like a you know pair of cowboy boots and you know and, and the you know, the PA announcer in San Antonio like was you know, clearly knew a lot about his career. I think he dated back to the ABA days and. And really did an excellent job of uh, you know talking about him and his legacy, and uh, and then you know in the Irving's book. He didn't play in the game uh, because of injury, so um, he was in a suit. But it was uh, it, it, it was cool to see. That was uh, yeah, it, definitely uh, check it out if you get a chance. Yeah, definitely. So uh, best playoff game. Uh, there were a couple options here um, officially in terms of game score. The uh, game two of the nineteen eighty finals. Um, it was a Philadelphia 107-104 uh, win in Los Angeles. It tied the series at 1-1. to Cheeks had 23 points on 80 true shooting, four rebounds, 10 assists, six steals, and three turnovers. Uh, interesting game here because the Sixers actually led significantly in the uh, fourth of 20 points, and the Lakers were able to uh, trim the lead to 105 104. Bobby Jones hit a jumper with seven seconds left to, uh, to seal the win. I couldn't find exactly what Cheeks did in the uh, fourth quarter here, but obviously a uh, stout uh, stat line, and in obviously, you know, it was only a second season at that point. Uh, you know, one of the most important games of his uh, of, of his career and a chance at the time for you know the Sixers to um, take one game in L.A. and you know go back home and have a chance to take a series that didn't work out for them of course but um, certainly put them in that position. Uh, the honorable mention game is uh, from Cheeks' rookie season. It's from the Eastern Conference semifinal game four. This is the uh, the Spurs and the 76ers, back when the Spurs were in the Eastern Conference. Uh, they beat uh, them one fifteen to one twelve and. Uh, and and cheeks had 33 points on 68 true shooting six rebounds and nine assists and this is you know as a rookie who was picked in the second round not expected really to contribute all that much and then you know being the uh, a point guard for a team that you know had just made the finals a couple years before it was still you know a they would lose this year but they were a strong playoff contender and would you know go on to championship contention very soon uh the uh the Sixers actually uh, were down this, because of this game; they lost. and were down three to one, but they didn't end up taking the series two seven games before losing the uh, final game one eighteen to uh, one hundred one. Yeah, and
3: avoiding, uh, thankfully, the Spurs avoided years and years of memes and, uh, and tweets <laughs> being directed in, in, in their way. But uh, yeah, yes. it could have been could have been bad for the old uh, San Antonio Spurs, but thankfully, sure they, uh, sure. <laughs> they avoided the Twitter they, embarrassment they, of uh, yes of losing three uh, one losing three sure. one leads. So good for them that they could do that but uh move on now to Jason Kidd and Jason Kidd's uh best overall game that we could find was 1996 this is uh January 12th 1996 uh Dallas 140 Phoenix 130 now the guessing game is what team was
2: Jason Kidd playing for Jason would you like to play well uh I can see it here in the notes so I will (laughs) guess that he was uh he was playing for the Knicks you
3: are wrong. No, indeed, he was playing for Dallas nah. at this time. But, uh, this nah. is, yeah, it's all right. I mean, it's all right. It, it, it's cool. But, uh, yeah, anyway, thank you for everybody for playing along with uh, what team was Jason Kidd on at, uh, in this game. But, uh, yeah, Kidd was still playing for Dallas. This is his second year. Uh, he'd be traded to Phoenix 22 games into the following season, though. So this is the beginning of the end for his Dallas uh, tenure. Uh, but as far as this game on January 12th, 1996, uh, 33 points on 82% true shooting, 16 assists, 12 rebounds and six turnovers. We'll ignore the six turnovers. Who cares? 16 assists, 12 rebounds, 33 points. That's all cool. Um, Interestingly enough, one of only 51 30-plus, 15-plus, 10-plus rebound triple-doubles ever. Um, and then There's only been 13 since Kidd did it in 1996. I found that the most interesting, is that there wasn't more of those that have kind of happened. Uh, as you could probably assume, Russell Westbrook, this seems like, it seems like a Russell Westbrook line. Uh, he has five of those uh, since Jason Kidd did it in 1996. LeBron only has it twice, though. I found that kind of funny that uh, you would assume uh, LeBron might have had a little bit more of those. But yeah, he only has two. Russell Westbrook has five. And only 13 have done it since Jason Kidd did it in 1996. Uh, Oscar Robertson is the all-time leader in these 30-plus, 15-plus, 10-plus triple doubles. He has 16. So Oscar Robertson, good at a lot of parts of basketball. So uh, this wasn't the first scoring outburst for Kidd though this year, uh, but one of his most efficient. Kid's career high uh, came in uh, 2001. He was a member of the Suns at that point. He scored 43 points uh, in that game as well. Uh, teammate Tony, uh, no, in this game rather I should say, uh, teammate uh, Tony Dumas also exploded for 39 points uh, in this this game for uh for dallas uh kids real emergence as a star came this year as well in 1996 is when he really became um what we we all kind of know jason Kidd to be Uh, as the first of his 10 all-star games Uh, he was also voted as an all-star starter in this year as well so it's pretty cool um and Mavericks you know the prior year had seen tremendous improvement uh, but things really fell apart this season uh, Mavericks stumbled out of the gates at this point uh, in January 12th they were 10 and 23 they'd finished season 26 and 56 uh, everybody hated each other kid would be gone after the next year and then the Mavericks would obviously float uh, in in obscurity for a few more years until Dirk came to town and, and Nash came in to town and everything kind of worked out a little bit better but uh, yeah this was you know it looked like they had gotten everything together they had Jim Jackson they had Jamal Mashburn they had Jason Kidd they saw the, one of the biggest you know single season improvements improvements the year prior and then the wheels all fell off this year and it took a while for it to come back and and, and kid obviously played a part in that as well with uh being kind of a, a you know adding some drama to that uh you know in the locker room and adding some some beef with with jim jackson and, and mashburn all those sort of guys but uh, yeah it's uh it's one of my like a, a team that i really love and i really wish they would have stayed together for a little bit because they were awesome to watch on the court and they looked like they could really do it but uh yeah it didn't uh, obviously did not work out for the uh, 90s mavericks
2: You know who we do not blame for the Mavericks troubles in the 90s? Don Nelson? My best friend George McLeod. The oh, I no, okay. best friend George McLeod. Yeah, all right, good. Yeah, no, okay. Yeah, because he didn't. No, it was not George McCloud's fault. I'm sure he was no. all good on the up and up. Yeah. He's, he's, I mean, know. he didn't have the best game here. I mean, only ten points on three and nice shooting, oh three from from three. But you know, maybe kid was too busy, you know, giving assists to you know sixteen other players. Well, not sixteen other players, but you know, the other players in this team. You know, rather than uh, I mean, I guess you know, Tony Dumas got the love here. You know, he 6 did, nine yes. from three. Yes. Yeah, but uh, yeah, fifteen and nine from the field. Probably his best game, I would imagine. Yeah, so uh, good, good.
3: Good. Yeah those guys yeah Tony Dumas of course yeah probably his best game um and and and, yeah George McLeod good because you know as long as you're not getting involved with Tony Braxton you're probably okay that's like you know what I mean like it's just like George McLeod's like I'm for that shit man yeah I'm just I'm I'm just out here to play ball guys yeah like Right, I know. Why I actually like George is like a forty-one-year-old at this
2: point. Like, oh man, I'm just, to
3: just, just out here trying to get these checks. It's like, all right, well, I mean, it's still like a sure. pretty young player he's, at this point. Probably, but he's probably whatever. more of an
2: invoke guy, anyway. So
3: yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. better than Tony Braxton. Yeah. He knows that, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's a that's a nice pull the invoke. Uh, all right, so playoff career best, right. uh, Rich. I was, I was afraid
2: like, that you were never going to get it. Oh no! <laughs> Damn
0: it. <laughs>
3: All right, that's it. Who cares? Steve Nash, he was in the Hall of Fame too. We're done. We're out of here. I played the music. Grant Hill, he went to the Hall of Fame too. All right. But, uh, yeah. Those guys. All right. Hold on. Okay. I'm back. All right. All right. All
2: right. Cool. <sighs>
3: Wow. Uh, <laughs> May 22nd, 2003, uh, New Jersey Nets, Detroit Pistons, New Jersey wins 97 uh, to 85. Uh, Jason Kidd has 34 points, his playoff career high on 64% true shooting, 6 assists and 12 rebounds. He was 11 to 13 from the free throw line in this game. Uh, that's a vital win for the Nets, who were in the driver's seat uh, in the 2003 Eastern Conference Finals. They went up 3-0 with the win. Uh, New Jersey would eventually sweep the Pistons and move on to their second straight NBA Finals. And this is interesting because they're always considered this Nets team, and I- I'm guilty of it as well, of just kind of laughing a being like oh geez well they kind you know somebody had to emerge from the east or whatever and and just go to get pounded by either the Spurs or the Lakers or whatever but the Nets were really dominant I mean that might speak more to the lack of quality in the Eastern Conference but still they won in six games against Boston or uh, against the Bucks they swept Boston and swept Detroit before going to the Spurs and obviously getting swept there but you know I think that's still pretty. I mean, that's a dominant performance to sweep Boston and sweep Detroit. And we knew that, you know, Detroit would be kind of a sleeping giant uh, there in a few years. Boston would obviously have, uh, you know, had some pretty good years prior to that and, you know, winning in six versus a a pretty stout Bucks team too. So I think we, we, you know, sort of laugh at the nets in this period because like, again, like somebody had to emerge from the East and it just happened to be them, but they weren't like a, a, you know, a bad team at all. I mean, they were a dominant team in the Eastern conference for sure at this time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They were, you know, uh, they were a pretty good team. And actually, they took the Spurs a six that year. They, oh, they that's right. The yeah, before. they didn't. Sweat. Yeah, so, they got,
3: oh, they got swept for the Lakers. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, they did. Yeah, so it was a pretty decent series, actually. It's yeah. Shocking. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't you know it was clear the Spurs were better, but it was but they you know they gave them a tough fight you know that, mm-hmm. that was don't watch any of
3: the games like, though we we cannot recommend any of the well, games being consumed uh, for public consumption yeah. so
2: don't, well, yeah. don't do that but uh, not, yeah. not not a peak of for NBA aesthetically for sure no so, definitely you know, not if but, you want to see baggy shorts you know yes then yes it's yeah, definitely especially. peak baggy shorts era but yeah
3: yeah definitely and uh, Aaron Williams lots of Aaron Williams if you really lots like Aaron Williams, Williams you'll like that There's series. A, <laughs>
2: Yeah, lot <laughs> out Aaron
3: Williams yes. uh, Honorable mentions here uh, April 27, 2007 uh, Kid has a playoff career 19 assists, a uh, playoff career high 19 assists and 16 rebounds against Toronto uh, May 14, 2007 uh, Kid grabs a playoff career high 17 rebounds against Cleveland Unfortunately, he suits uh, 2 of 12 from the field 1 of 7 from 3 and has as many fouls as points but 17 rebounds, that's kind of cool uh, And then last but not least 4-16-2011 six, We have jumped quite a few years here Kid has transformed his career and transformed the way he plays. He had six of ten from three in a huge win over Portland as the uh, the Mavs marched towards the NBA Finals and then an eventual NBA Championship, the one and only one uh, for Jason Kidd as well. But yeah, this is when he became Jason Kidd three point shooter, which I never ever thought would happen, but it happened and it was a real thing and it was pretty cool too.
2: Yeah, it's weird how that went from such an extreme weakness to an extreme strength uh, later in his career. That you know that was kind of what. Kept him around. I mean, obviously, it has all his other skills, but that kind of kept him uh, as his. You know, overall game declined. He was able to. You know, he had that three point shot. That kind of kept him uh, able to be to be playing more than you would have expected. You know, a guy with his skills to have because usually guys who can't shoot, uh, you know, have a tough time as they age. So to, to be able to develop that's pretty incredible.
3: Yeah, no, and it was – I mean, he played a huge role in this Mavs team as well. I mean, that spot-up threes, I mean, that that arguably is is as important as anybody else. Of course, Dirk obviously being the most important. But, yeah, Jason Kidd becoming, like, a knockdown, you know, lights-out three-point shooter was something nobody expected. And it took forever for people to actually – because he'd be open from three, and you could see people were like, yeah, that's Jason Kidd, whatever. And it's like, no, I can shoot threes now. Like, it's pretty nuts. And and maybe, you know, not not the first one, obviously, but one of the more – Pronounced guys that that you know and we see it now all the time where guys will change their game and adapt their to the three you know brooke lopez or one of guys guys that are sort of finding their their skills eroding and then decide to pick up the three and that become the real thing but kid feels like one of the first really super important guys that was just like nope i found the best way to keep my career alive is just shoot more threes like even though he was not that at all it became as you said a real big weakness that he turned into an absolute strength as well so
2: yeah <sighs> So, uh, next we have uh, Steve Nash, and uh, his best overall performance was a pretty famous game, also involving Jason Kidd, as we'll find out. Um, December 7, 2006, a Phoenix in double overtime, uh, beating the Nets 161 to 157. And Nash had 42 points on 77 true shooting, six rebounds, 13, uh, 13 assists, and three turnovers. Um, he actually had nine of his points in the second overtime to help seal the win. And this set his uh, regular season career high. Although he would actually tie that 15 days later against uh, Washington, where he, he would have a uh, 42, three, and 12. It would be his eighth best game score. So interesting little flurry in his uh, during this time for him in his uh, his career. Uh, this was be uh, this actually was after his two MVP seasons. And a lot of people think that his 2007 season was actually his, the best of his career. It was certainly comparable to those MVP seasons, but he may have been at his peak at that point at age 32, um, almost 33 at this point. So, um, and this also happens to be, uh, the fifth highest game on, uh, Jason Kidd's game score list. He had 38, 14, 14 in this game, speaking of uh, big stat lines, but this is a classic game, uh, Looking back at the ESPN repack cap of the game at the time, there were 34 lead changes and 21 ties. Uh, Mike D'Antoni's quote was, I think we can go home and turn on Classic NBA. It will be on there already. That's the best game I've ever seen. And Nash was able to hit a three-pointer at the end of regulation to force overtime. And then Kidd uh, had a shot at the end of first overtime, went halfway down, and then fell out to uh, keep the game going. Um, the game had 224 shots, 27 three-pointers, which, of course, was a lot more at the time than it is now, 57, files, 57 fouls, and only 29 turnovers, which, you know, two overtimes, fast pace, you know, um, that's, that's a relatively low amount, and, uh, the last tie in the game was at 157 with, uh, 33 seconds left, uh, Kid got a three-point play, but then, uh, Nash, um, Hit, got his thirteenth and final assist with a little pass to uh, Dia for a short shot in the lane, and then he later Nash later hit two free throws to seal the game. So, um, obviously remarkable uh, game overall. This is one that's kind of talked about in terms of you know some of the best uh, overall regular season games in NBA history.
3: Yeah, it's it's a really great one if you've never seen it, and I know the NBA Classic. I mean, I don't know if they played it that night, uh, Mike, but I believe they still do play it sometimes here and there. But yeah, thirty-four lead changes, twenty-one ties. It's just an awesome back and forth, and and more than that, just the seeing Jason Kidd and, and, and Steve Nash really, as you said, going back and forth. And it's one of Kidd's best games. It's one of Nash's best games, and it's really it feels like their games too. If you watch it, you know that these two dudes are just dueling, going back and forth, and you know there's some extra weight to it with those two guys understanding, you know, where they were at this point in their careers and and, and what they represented being, you know. The the best point guards arguably of that entire generation so really fun game to watch and yeah it's fun to see uh this nets team sort of open up a little bit and of course the suns at this point were, were just a joy to watch as well so yeah really really fun game if you ever get a chance to check it out
2: yeah definitely and the fact that of course they've been teammates you know with each other and you know had roughly parallel you know years of their career and often compared to each other you yeah, definitely a great yeah. stand out oh, for sure. both guys yeah um Yeah, so uh, best playoff performance is from um, May 20th, 2005. It is Game 6 of the Western Conference Semifinals. uh, A 130-126 win for Phoenix against uh, Dallas. Uh, The Suns sealing the series with this win. And uh, Nash had... I, I, we probably don't need to do the guessing game here on which team that uh, Nash uh, played for. Do you, you want to guess? Uh, you wanna uh, guess
3: what? <laughs> I know all too well, unfortunately, because uh, yeah. I was obviously a big Mavericks fan at this time, and I know that he uh, yeah, he had left for the Suns at this point. And,
2: oh, not the Lakers, though. He's yeah. not on the Lakers? No. Though. Okay. All
3: right. <laughs> Warriors. <laughs> His Warriors practice okay. squad. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes. So the Lakers, he yes, never played for the Lakers. What are you talking about? That never happened. So okay, Steve Nash Lakers. What are you? What are you? are nuts, Jason. What are you that talking about? Ridiculous, doesn't that's it? That's never happened. Yeah, it's, it's, right. That's not. That would not be fun at all if he went to the Lakers. It would not be fun in not, any level not, whatsoever. Yeah, so no, yeah, there's no way no. that that happens. So.
2: Yeah, obviously not. Um, yes, so he had left uh, Dallas for Phoenix in the prior offseason, Had you know won the MVP. Now battling his old team in the playoffs. Uh, Thirty nine points on seventy three two shooting. Nine rebounds. Twelve assists. Uh, four turnovers. But in fifteen minutes, that's, that's not too bad given the how much he handles the ball. It's his actually his second uh, best overall game score. Really uh, remarkably high on uh, his overall list. Uh, he was able to make his final five shots in the game and had uh, eight points in the final minute of regulation uh, and uh, seven more in overtime, so really uh, scoring flurry toward the end. Of course, you don't necessarily think of Steve Nash. Obviously, he has great ability to shoot and great ability to playmake, but you don't necessarily think of him as a guy who's going to go out there and gun and have just like a scoring flurry, but uh, at least in this game, he absolutely did that
3: yeah and it's it was oh and i was gonna say just an incredible way to cap off his mvp season as well or not cap off his mvp mvp season but put a maybe a little bit more of a stamp on the mvp year for for sure
2: yeah and they were able to the suns you know they were down 16 you know fairly late in the game uh nash hit a three-pointer to force overtime uh and then made the three that uh put the Suns ahead for good in the overtime and uh Dirk Tavitsky's quote was, he made some unbelievable plays, not only today to win the game, but in every game they won. I've never seen him play better than this. I think he really wanted to show all of that, all of what we missed, and he really did that. So, um, and obviously they have a you know, very close friendship uh, with each other even today. And um, the um, and, and from uh, the New York Times recap here, um, pointed out that Nash scored more than 30 points in each of the uh, final three games of the series, including a career-high 48 points in Game 4, which we'll get to in a moment. And during the regular season, he scored more than 30 points just twice. And his uh, averages over the six-game series, 30.3 points, 12.0 assists, and 6.5 rebounds. So, obviously, pretty stout. Um, And I wanted to mention that 48-point game as an honorable mention here, because it happened in the same series. It was obviously very important. uh, The stat line there, 48 points on 81 true shooting, five rebounds, five assists, three steals, and nine turnovers. Um, But yet it was still his third best overall game score of his career, including both playoffs and regular season. So um, obviously a remarkable game, 23 points in the uh, third quarter. And another interesting thing is the Suns actually lost this game uh, by 10 and were never closer than nine in the fourth quarter. And I I read about where the Mavs kind of intentionally – try to turn Nash into a scorer in this game Um, and that actually kind of played to the Mavs hands because obviously they took him out of the game as a uh, as a distributor and sort of took out away the rhythm of the Suns usual offense and Nash obviously made the adjustment and was it both an amazing scorer and playmaker for the final two games of the series.
3: Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's a great series as well. If you ever want to go back and check out and, and really see, you know, because Nash, uh, you know, I and, and in some ways unfairly, and we've talked about this before on the shows, he gets kind of maligned for these MVP years because it's like, you know, there were obviously there were there were better players or guys that were a little bit more deserving. But it's just amazing to see, especially this playoff run. I know that didn't play a part in his MVP run, but you really see how important he was and how transcendent he was this year, uh, completely transforming that team and, and and really in some ways transforming the NBA at that point. I mean, the Suns came in like a fucking a, a, a dynamo. People had not seen anything like that like this uh, in quite a while and never seen it done as efficiently. And I don't think any- that gets done without, uh, you know, a Steve Nash type run in the show. So no, this is this series in particular you see and you just go, Oh yeah, this is probably why he's the MVP. I mean, he takes games over individually and just really does some incredible stuff that entire series and that entire playoff run on uh, that entire season uh, as well.
2: Yeah. And uh, you know, this leads to sort of an interesting piece from the uh, ringer that was written, you know, during hall of fame week, uh, looking at kind of the idea of what if Nash had shot more in his career? It, it talked to um, Mike D'Antoni and uh, you know, talked about uh, you know Don Nelson, how he had tried to just, you know, um, get Nash to shoot like Nash wouldn't shoot for him. And then D'Antoni was like, hey, you know, maybe I should have made him shot more. It was a 42.8 percent. Uh, shooter from 3 and that might have actually even done more to um you know bolster their offense and obviously at the time they were a historically great offense um i, I think probably some of their efficiency records have been passed by the Warriors at this point but obviously at the time you know he led, led the top offense in the league for seven or eight years i, I believe so um i don't know what, what what do you think about that do you think there's i mean it just seems like on one hand like i see because of a what a tremendous shooter he was that, yeah, shooting more would be a good idea because, you know, you, you can shoot it that much. Um, you know, that's, that's going to be good. That's going to be important. That's going to help your offense. But, um, I don't know. I, I find it hard to imagine a, a gunner, Steve Nash. And I also think that, you know, his skill, um, I, although shooting was a tremendous part of his talent, he he was such. I mean, he's you know w- one of the two or three greatest playmakers in NBA history. I would I would say uh, you know pretty clearly. And, and you know the having him shoot more might take away some of that.
3: Yeah, I, I tend to agree as well. And I think one of the reasons why is if you watch a lot of his games of this era, especially the ones where you know he does shoot plenty of threes and he he makes plenty of threes, but they seem to all come in the flow of an offense. They come with. The the understanding that Nash could playmake at any point could pass at any point could could roll off a pick and roll at any point and that's sort of where he was able to get a lot of open shots as guys would you know double team a rolling Amari Stoudemire they'd see a cutting Sean Marion and 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 put an extra man on him or whatever and that gave Nash a little bit more of of leeway so I think you may take some of that away if it becomes an idea that well hey Steve Nash is just going to pull up here let's not. You know peel off on on onto Marion or let's not peel off on an uh, amari or let's not you know put some extra help on on dia and I think a lot of it just seemed to come in the flow of 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 the offense and a lot of his open threes you know yeah, he was a great shooter and, and an efficient shooter, but I think a lot of it was helped by his passing, you know what I mean like where where people didn't get right up on Nash because you couldn't because he would blow past you and get an awesome pass or he'd blow past you and go to the rim because he was so good at that too I think that's one of the underrated things too is you know his, his, his ability at the rim both with the left and the right were just incredible that he could finish. Uh, With both hands so efficiently, but I think all that sort of made him a better three point shooter. Where I think that maybe the idea that Steve Nash isn't going to pass as much or that Steve Nash isn't going to drive as much, but Steve Nash is going to shoot more, might have hurt a little bit of of all those aspects. I think I think what we got was exactly what we needed to get, and probably what was the best for them and and the best for Nash at that point too. So I just yeah, to me I can't wrap my head around Nash just coming up you know coming down the court and just immediately chucking a three. I don't know. I I just don't like that nearly as much as I like what, what we got with Nash instead.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, it, it's an interesting thought exercise and, you know, I, I do like to be able to look at these games where he kind of went off on score and it, I, I think it adds to some mystery of like, oh, what would he have done that is it's, you, know, you get some of those highlights and it's fun to see. But yeah, I, I, I like the I, I like the normal Steve Nash better than the idea of Steve Nash is trying to be like kind of like a Steph Curry because we got a Steph Curry and I love the Steph Curry, but I don't know if I want like everyone to be like Steph Curry, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and Curry as well is is a guy who I think benefits a lot by his ability to drive. And that's a guy Nash too. Like we talk about Nash shooting, we talk about his passing. He's a great, you know, great at getting to the rim, real crafty getting to the rim. And, and Curry's that way too. I mean, that's one of the reasons what makes Curry so in, insane is that yeah, you can you can guard him from thirty five feet, but then he's gonna blow by you and hit a hit a layup on you. He's you know one of the most efficient scorers at the rim, and Nash is one of those guys as well. So that's always played a huge role in it. So yeah, I'm 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 happy with what we got with Nash, and and yeah, maybe he. Could could have shot more, but I think, you know, I I think more. I don't know. It's hard to explain because it's like, well, they were fine. (laughs) Historically great offense. Like, I don't know what else they would have done that was much better. And I think as well, being that Nash was what he was. And there's a highlight video when he got into the Hall of Fame a few weeks ago. uh, That was Nash's like best passes every single year of his career. And it's just insane to see the stuff he was doing. And be so like, think of the other guys on his team, too. Like how much more fun it was to play with Steve Nash. It was just these passes. You're like, how do you even think of that? Like, how are you even where are your eyes going that you didn't even know to get to me? I think it just all worked a little bit better with him being more of a willing distributor but not you know away from the shooting maybe you know earlier in his career he was a little bit less of an offensive threat but in this time he really was able to balance both of those and, and be a good offensive threat while also still keeping on the playmaking so I like Nash the way we got him so I don't want to change the thing Hmm.
2: <laughs> fair enough Uh, next, probably a player whose uh, career we might like to make some changes for would be, uh, would be Grant Hill. And obviously without the, uh, the (laughs) injuries in the early 2000s, uh, you know, he obviously was hitting... Career player in the uh, late '90s and was still able to overcome those injuries and salvage a you know a, a pretty good career in the in the second half and some memorable moments. But obviously, you know, was you know, even though he made the Hall of Fame, you know, he could have with the start of his career. It seems like he potentially could have been, you know, maybe a top 25, top 30 level you know player of all time. He seemed like he might be on that career track at you know at the time, and, and obviously didn't quite accomplish that
3: he's got to if you haven't ever like gone back and watched a lot of like Grant Hill highlights like a really transcendent I mean there was I know there were some articles coming out about him being like the first point forward and that that's not true at all like he would definitely was not the first point forward but a very dynamic guy that could do almost everything I mean it just was weird that, that that you know you have a guy who was was pretty well you know pretty decent size who could dribble well who could drive well who had good speed who had good defense who had good you know dunking ability like Grant Hill was kind of the all around player and seemed like the next step in the line of like oh my God Jordan was good but this guy he's a a little bit taller and can do a little bit more but uh of course and and he did for quite a few years we'll talk about the you know th- those years uh in a, in a sec here but this was his best game ever in uh, 1999 this is fe- uh, february 8th 1999 uh detroit pistons versus the washington wizards 106 103 uh for the uh, Pistons, uh, Grant Hill scores 46 points, a career-high 75% true shooting, 7 assists, 7 rebounds, 18 of 22 from the free-throw line, 18 of 22. Uh, most important point was Hill's uh, go-ahead free-throw with 13 seconds remaining. Uh, and interesting enough that he uh, was able to get that scoring total without a single three made or attempted. Made or attempted. He didn't attempt a three. He didn't make a three. He still had forty six career points. I did a little bit of numbers on that since Hill did it. Only eleven other times have we seen a uh, a guy who's a guard forward. I, I said, of course, there's plenty of centers who who get forty six points that don't shoot a threes or whatever. But in terms of like a guard forward, um, only eleven times since Hill did it uh, have we seen a guy score forty without a single uh, uh, three-point attempt. Uh, Michael Jordan did it four times during his Wizards comeback. Iverson did it twice, uh, and most recently uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo did it in uh, 2017 as well. So it's a very rare thing to uh, score that many points as a guard forward and not shoot a single three, so pretty cool there. Uh, teammate at this point, Jerry Stackhouse, he scored 29 points off the bench in 40 minutes. This is a, a weird time because I was kind of like, well, what the hell happened? Why was Jerry Stackhouse on the bench? And I come to find out that they just decided to use Jerry Stackhouse off the bench uh, almost every game for whatever reason uh, this year. They uh, used him off the bench a lot during his first few years in Detroit as well. So I don't know if they just didn't know what they had in Stackhouse or they, the idea was that Stackhouse could be this dynamic score coming off the bench. I couldn't find any articles that talked about it. So I don't know if you remembered as well why Jerry Stackhouse was coming off the bench so often. Because, like, in Philadelphia, yeah, I know he wasn't. He was a starter and, and, and one of the big guys, but in Detroit, for whatever reason, they. But he'd still play, you know, forty plus minutes every game or whatever. But I thought it was kind of interesting him coming off the bench.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure it was obviously an intentional thing. I mean, you obviously want to get Mark Macon all the minutes that you can, but um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, no, I, I, I like I said, I, am pretty sure there was some tactical decisions going on there. I mean, maybe you try to um. I mean, not that Hill and Stackhouse couldn't play together, but, you know, maybe you try to get Stackhouse in in there when you don't have Hill to have another creator, you know, um, in there, another dynamic kind of guy who, you know, does some of the same things, obviously not quite as well, but... um, yeah, other than that, it does seem, yeah, there's, there's a reason why the Pistons were not necessarily, you know, the most exceptional uh, franchise uh, in, in the world during this time.
3: Yeah, no, and it seems like a good idea on principle, but it's like, that's ah, your Stackhouse, man, yeah. just play, you know what I mean, just like play him a lot, because right. he's good and, and yeah. stuff, but uh, no, it's pretty fun there. Uh, third game of the season in, uh, uh, at this point, uh, this is, of course, you're saying, what the hell, it's February 8th, that's because of the lockout, of course, is why it was only the third game of the season, but... Um, Hill, ironically enough, was in the midst of a uh, kind of an Iron Man streak in his career. Uh, he had played 80 games in 1996, 80 games in 1997, 81 games in 1998, and the entire 50-game season in 1999. So, yay, Grant Hill never hurt. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's, things are going to get weird here in a bit because he's going to always be hurt for quite a few years now after that. But, uh yeah, uh, Hill, before this game, uh, Hill's previous high was 38 points in a uh, 124-120 victory over Indiana, April 20th, 1997. So I'm sure uh, he celebrated after that game. That's not true. Uh, Grant Hill is a very wise man. He would not use 420 to, you know, do anything but read the. I I don't know what Grant Hill is doing. I'm sure, he, but whatever. All right, uh, this uh, as we mentioned, this Pistons team, not good but unique. Uh, it features a new star in Grant Hill an emerging second star in Jerry Stackhouse, but then also vestiges of Pistons past. You have Joe Dumars, 34 years old, and Rick Mahorn, 39 years old, still left on the team. And also, I found this kind of interesting. This team also features players that always played like 35-year-olds. You have Theo Ratliff, who at this point was 24, but I'm positive still played like he was 35. Lindsey Hunter, who was always 34 years old, even though at this point he was 27. And Aaron McKee, who, believe it or not, was at one point 25 years old, even though I promise he played like a 33-year-old. So I like that. Theo Ratliff, Lindsey Hunter, and Aaron McKee were all on this team. And I Imagine they were all limping down the court very slowly, uh, even though they were in their mid to uh, early twenties at this point. So I can't imagine Aaron McKee being spry. Like there was
2: no chance Aaron McKee was ever spry, right? No. Yeah, I think Theo Ratliff was spry at one point. Like I think he was. Yeah, I I, I do think he was like kind of athletic and shot blocking and all that good stuff. And And
3: I guess before Lindsey Hunter ate Aaron McKee, he was a little, (laughs) he was a little quicker too. But then, (laughs) yeah, uh, Lindsey Hunter got a little. Enjoyed cooking in various towns that he was
0: in. Yeah, so, yeah. well, you know, which yeah. I don't blame in him. Detroit. Man, you know? it's, you know.
2: when you're, it's cold in Detroit. What are you going to do other than have a nice meal? You know, <laughs> right. soup. You know, have a, a lot of soup. Nice yes. stew. Very, very. You know, <laughs> very lot. filling stew, You know, bread bowl. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah those bread bowls add up. You know? Yeah,
3: it is. It probably was the bread bowl. So I don't blame him. If I could eat a bread bowl every day, I would. But unfortunately, I don't yeah. want to be as fat as Lindsey Honor was at the end of his right. career. So, yeah, uh, unfortunately, true. I can't so. uh, eat a bread bowl because that also don't burn. You know, six thousand calories every night. As well, but sure. anyway, let's uh, let's get to the playoffs here. Um, this is 1999 uh, for the Detroit Pistons. It's uh, May 14th, 1999. Detroit uh, 103, Atlanta 82. Yes, Atlanta. We'll talk about them here in a sec. But uh, interestingly, a big dip in his best playoff game score. Grant Hill's best playoff uh, game score, uh, pr- you know. Yeah, it's a small sample at this point, obviously for Hill, and it would be a small sample all, all time because, you know, he would make the playoffs a lot more years, you know, with the with the Clippers and with the Suns later in his career. But it was all as kind of a role player and stuff. He wasn't really a featured guy. But yeah, it was kind of weird that that you get a pretty big drop off in his peak, uh, from what he was able to do in the regular season and what he was able to do in the playoffs. But yeah, of course we we give the caveat that it was kind of a small sample. But uh in this game, uh twenty three points, nine assists, six rebounds, sixty two percent true shooting. Um just kind of circle back in there, uh, Hills playoff averages with Detroit, 15 games, uh, 19.6 points per game, 6.9 rebounds per game, uh, compared to his regular season totals of 21.6 points per game and 7.9 rebounds per game. So not a huge drop-off, but a little noticeable as well. I mean, that 19.6 kind of stands out uh, in the playoffs. You would assume that you would be a little bit more of a focal point and, and score a little bit more. But uh, yeah, just over 15 games and, and still not... Really ridiculously different numbers, but still uh, enough that you notice it in the game scores. I uh, definitely reflected it as well. You know, a little bit less of the the other stats, a little bit more of the turnovers and whatnot. I'm not I'm not saying Grant Hill is like a choker or anything like that, but just you know, it was it was kind of interesting to see that there was that big of a dip uh, between what he did in the playoffs and what he did uh, in the regular season.
2: Yeah, his highest playoff game score was not among his top 100 overall game scores, mm-hmm. and that, that was just unusual. You know, most guys had a game that was like you know somewhere in the in the teens or 20s or 30s at least. But and like I said, Nash, his second and third were both playoff games, so it just it, yeah, it stood out. I was, I'm not saying it means anything, but it, I thought it was interesting. Uh, yeah, and as
3: far as this uh, this playoff series went, Detroit, uh, they won this game, of course, as I mentioned, that even the Eastern Conference first round at 2-2, uh, Hawks would eventually win the series 3-2, uh, Pistols would fall in the first round the next year as well, and that would be Hill's last year in Detroit before he went to uh, Orlando, and things went great for Hill in Orlando. Uh, Atlanta advanced to the Eastern Conference semis, where they were swept 4-0 by the Knicks, and this would be their last playoff appearance until 2008, so... Womp womp <laughs> for the Hawks. Man. After being a pretty consistent playoff team for many, many years, they went away for quite a while and didn't yeah. emerge at all <laughs> in any way, shape, or form.
2: Yeah, the, the Pistons rushed a little better this year than I thought they were. They were 29 21. So I guess, uh, you know, playing Mark Macon, I guess, worked out pretty well for them. Yeah, year. so here we're giving all this, you know,
3: we're giving them crap and then here you go. They're Yeah, us, so. <laughs> yeah
2: there, there you go. Um, yeah, so moving on next, we have uh, Charlie Scott. And, um, of course the uh, great player for the uh, Squires in the ABA and with the uh, with the Suns and the Celtics in the uh, NBA. And uh, his uh, best of course we don't have game score uh, for uh, his career basically. so um, we have to you know go by uh, what we have and you know, kind of looking at you know point totals and looking at um, and, and looking at, at some of his best stat lines and, and so forth the ones that stood out were a game from um, uh, from 1972 from November 23rd, 1972 the Suns uh, beating the Pistons 128-122 and Scott had 42 points on 68 true shooting 10 rebounds, 15 assists this was actually the very beginning of uh, his second season with the Suns. he only played there uh, six games in the previous season after he defected uh, from Virginia of the ABA to Phoenix uh, toward the end of the season, abandoning a team with a Dr. J on it for, uh, I guess, for greener pastures or I guess if it's Phoenix it's browner pastures. <laughs> yeah, I'm more not really, sandy. Sure. More I really like, Maybe he really likes sand. I mean I I, I, yeah. I like the he likes the, sure. the dry weather. I like the I like the, you know I, Yeah. He's the opposite of Anakin Skywalker <laughs> he <likes> sand, So <laughs> um. <laughs>
3: So you got, yes, you, um, you're, you're in a you're in a good mood here. You're on you're on fire today. You better oh, there you go. The
2: quips are going. Gotta, start writing these stuff going down. Yeah. <laughs> you're yep. killing it
3: That <laughs> you don't always. Not that you're not always on your A game, but
2: I just mean you know, tonight's it's yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a good fun. Uh, well, I'm I'm I. Uh, glad to, to uh to, to please hopefully those sims are enjoying themselves as well um, <laughs> anyway th- there are 60 recorded triple doubles with 42 or more points in nba history by 22 players so this is a pretty select company there for to have a triple double with this many points <clears throat> and a fun fact that uh charlie scott had uh seven 40 point games in the nba and 560 games total and he had 27 in the ABA in only 147 games, so the, uh, he had an easier time scoring in the ABA. I guess not a huge surprise there. But, <laughs> yeah. but in terms of his uh, great playoff performances, uh, one stood out, and it was actually in the ABA from uh, from uh, April 10th, 1971. It was Game Six of the ABA Eastern Conference Semis. The uh, the Squires of Virginia uh, beat the New York Nets 118 to 114, and um, he this sealed the uh, win for the Squires. They they beat the Nets. Uh, we he we only know that the point total here, which is thirty eight points. that We don't have actually any other stats, but we do. What I guess it's not completely true because we know that he had sixteen field goals. He had one three pointer, and he was five of eight from the free throw line. So we, we, we know that we don't know how many shots he took. We don't know rebounds or assists, but we at least we know the number of field goals and the percentage from the lines, so yeah. which is obviously the most important things to keep track of. Um, but, you know, what I thought was notable about this game is definitely a scoring duel with Rick Barry of the Nets, who had 45 points. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of back and forth there. Uh, Scott had 25 points in the second half, including 18 in the fourth quarter. So, obviously, great for down the stretch. Uh, we have a New York Times uh, article from 1971 uh, in the archives that kind of um, describes some of the action from the game. It talks about how his ability to uh, beat Joe Dupre in one-on-one situations throughout the last quarter enabled the um, uh, the Squires to rally from behind and talked about how time and again that he brought the ball up the court and worked behind the rim with Dupre guarding him and uh, was able to find split-second openings he needed to score after quick moves. And um, the game was tied 96-all when uh, Scott drove around Dupre for the tying basket and then with seconds to go, and the Squires up by three. Uh, Scott passed it inside of Doug Moe, who sank the uh, game-clinching basket. So, uh, based on the description there, with some some clutch play, high point total, and a fun duel with Rick Barry. So, I thought this was a good choice uh, for that. Definitely. And
3: and I know that uh, for people that that are, you know, you're probably familiar, most of the people listening to this, you're probably familiar with a lot of the other guys we mentioned here. But, Charlie Scott, you might not know a lot about. I, I know that they... Uh The NBA put out a uh, career retrospective video about him, and I know there's some other stuff as well. Uh, Not only NBA, but also streetball as well, doing uh, New York City, Rucker Park, stuff that he was pretty famous for, uh, those as well. So if you get a chance, uh, go check him out because he's a really, really fun player and and, and one that, yeah, I'm assuming most of the people probably listening to this were not aware of him or have not seen much of his games. But, uh, yeah, definitely one to watch and and a very, very fun player and a definitely deserving uh, Hall of Famer for sure.
2: Absolutely yes. Um, yeah. Well, you know, we um, he was not d- picked for the Hall of Fame primarily on his uh, uh, NBA merits, but you know, I just thought, why not look up Dino Raja's uh, <clears throat> game scores and determine you know his uh, best game of uh, his career since he's also a new Hall of Famer. He played a few years for the Celtics in the NBA, so so we're going to go ahead and do that a little, little bonus. Uh, oh, Dino so. Raja bonus. <laughs> Who knew? I know. <laughs> I know. It's big, and uh, yes, uh, Adino's top two are from the same month in uh, March of 1994. Um, his top game is from um, March 27th, in which he had uh, 36 points, uh, 11 rebounds, uh, five assists, and was 12 of 15 from the field and and uh, also 12 of 12 from the free throw line. So, th- uh, 36 points in that game, a 35.2 uh, game score. And uh, had a similar performance uh, just uh, a few weeks earlier against the Lakers. Thirty-six points, fifteen rebounds, uh, and was uh, fifteen of twenty-two from the field, six of eight from the uh, line. So some, uh, s- some, some great games there. Yeah, you know, he overall was more kind of a journeyman in the NBA. Obviously, had a great international career, and congratulations to him to, to uh, making the uh, the Hall of Fame. But uh, just wanted to throw that out there for all the Dino Roger fans. Yeah, and it would be
3: interesting. Uh, the thing with Dino Raja, if you're not familiar, I mean, obviously, there's a, we're not going to talk about it on this show because it would take quite a while, but uh, the whole because he was signed initially to come to the Celtics or he was drafted initially by the Celtics in 1989 and had all plans to come to the team around that year you know uh, and there was issues with him getting out of his contract in Yugoslavia and, and him having to go to Rome to play for a few years and stuff but it would have been pretty interesting to see what he would have done because you know and by the time he came to the Celtics he was obviously still in his prime but it would have been fun to see him a few early years prior with that still pretty good Boston team with you know Larry Bird with those sort of types and see how much different his career would have been because he comes to the Boston what I think it was 1993 or whatever and that's obviously a very different team now you know Your Rick Fox, you know Celtics, and it's not the same, you know, level of uh, of Boston that it was when he first tried to come uh, into the league. But that would have been fascinating to see what he would have done because he had a pretty solid NBA career. Obviously, not a great career, but you know, loses three or four years that that may have been pretty important to him. You know, maybe straight up making the 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 Hall of Fame as an NBA player. We have no idea what those three years would have been, but uh, yeah, definitely pretty interesting to see because he was a very very good European player at that point.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, uh, you know, Pioneer, you know, congrats to him. Some some you know, a cool honor for him. Just to, yeah, if we gotta we, we, we gotta give some denominators stuff up. I mean the yeah. Hall of Fame did it, but we gotta we have to, you know, give <laughs> uh-huh. the, the cherry on top of the Sunday, so to speak. Yeah,
3: for sure. And and by the way, the whole the whole thing with him in Yugoslavia, I mean it was no, it went to like U.S. District Court, and stuff. it was a it complete disaster. It was like a really, really ridiculous thing uh, that went on because Yugoslavia did not want him out of his contracts, and the Boston wanted him. It's kind of funny to see just these international teams sort of uh, battling after each other. But uh, yeah, definitely pretty interesting there. If you ever get a chance to uh, read about that or check it out, but uh, yeah, Dino Raja, pretty, uh, pretty prolific European player and a pretty decent uh, NBA player as well. So,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, all we have for uh, for the show. Uh, thanks everyone for uh, checking us out. You can find us on uh, Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back NBA. We are part of the uh, Step Back at uh, FanSided. So uh, check us out there. Check all the uh, the great podcasts and uh, articles that are going on as the season winds or winds up i guess is that the expression i don't know as the season gets into gear they're gonna have a lot of coverage of uh, a lot of season previews and a lot of uh, cool stuff there's there's stuff going on there all year round so so definitely check it out and uh give us a rating review on itunes or stitcher wherever you listen to your podcasts we are on every major platform and if we're not on one that you like you let us know and we'll get on there so uh thanks for listening and we'll be back again soon